Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of The Publisher Lab. I am Tyler Bishop. Alongside me today, Shelby Kang. Shelby, we're back from New York and back with plenty of insights and lots of great information from all the publishers we get to hang out with in New York. Yeah, that was actually the first thing I wanted to start the podcast off with today was um, Pubtelligence last week. So that was a lot of fun. It was. You know, it's always fun to get to hang out at Google. You know, like um, Google's such a big force in this space. And I think uh, when you when you go to that office and you see that the the entire building is like, to go from one side to the other, you almost need to Uber, right? Yeah, it's like multiple blocks. It's kind of crazy. And so going up in there, the badging process and getting, you know, approved to go upstairs. I know for our publishers, it's not the funnest process in the world. I can tell you planning an event there is not easy either. Um, so it, it was a lot of fun to hang out there and get to, to talk to a lot of the Googlers and then also just talk to a lot of different types of publishers too, right? Yeah, we had a good range of, you know, small independent publishers, um, some medium-sized ones, and then, of course, we had some big brands um, in attendance and also speaking. Um, we had some, you know, more medium-sized ones speaking, so I think that we kind of touched all our bases, hopefully. Out of all the presentations, though, um, did you have a favorite from the day after hearing them all? Um, so, no, because I, it would not be fair to, at all to say that. Uh, there's, I, there's things that I really liked about all of them. I can tell you what um, our survey data showed and um, what I think that people really liked about those, those presentations. So there was three presentations that really stood out um, when we look at the feedback from all, all the publishers. Um, so every presentation got... Uh, like Marx's is someone's favorite. So there wasn't a single presentation that didn't get votes for like best. So just to be fair, in case any of our speakers happen to be listening. or um, So Anita Campbell from Small Biz Trends uh, was, a, was a real favorite. And I think uh, for a couple reasons. One is she shared the story of how she did it, right? So she's a medium-sized publisher, uh, independent, and... Um, basically kind of gave us like the story of how she's grown and created success in the last few years and then also showed us exactly how she did it, the tools that she used, the steps that she took, her mentality through it. And I think a lot of publishers came there hoping to get like exact ideas on what to do. I know that um, our very own Piper was among the favorites and this is unbiased commentary we're getting from it so. is so i i'm so i've known piper for a long time and uh you know working at azoic was her first job out of college and this is you know six seven years ago and so um she's really developed into uh, a real asset for our for our company and our business and um this was her first time ever presenting. Uh, her mom actually came, uh, so I, I don't mean to embarrass her, but uh, I, I thought, number one, I thought she killed it. I thought she did an awesome job presenting, so I, it was really great to see that. Um, but then at the same time, uh, it was one of the favorites, and I think partially that comes from the fact that she was pre presenting on three case studies uh, of Azote customers, and she's worked with um, you know, probably thousands of publishers over the years, and so she was really in her element, just kind of speaking through like how three different publishers had succeeded. And initially, when we were going over ideas, she was like, "Should I show you know a success story and then a story of failure?" Because she's like, you know, thousands of publishers. I've seen just as many failures as I have successes. 
and ultimately we decided on the successes and it was um, it was an excellent presentation I thought and I I think it comes back to the fact that publishers came there hoping to get some ideas on what exactly they should do and seeing seeing someone that's done it put a name to it and then seeing exactly what they've done is really valuable I think and I think that's you know a takeaway for us as we organize these things in the future yeah I think we all on the Zoic side had a proud mom moment for Piper Another female rock star we had in the group um, was Carolyn Shelby from ESPN. Um, she was a rock star all day, kind of jumping in and answering some questions even when it wasn't her session, which was really helpful, it seems. Yeah, so Carolyn Shelby is the head of SEO for ESPN. She's been a consultant in the past, and um, I, I kind of got came across her on Twitter a while back because I, I saw her commentary on a couple threads, and I was like, she really seems like she knows what she's talking about. I'd like for her to come and serve on a SEO panel, which was another one of our you know favorite sessions. And so we brought her onto the panel, and it's really the first time I'd have an, had an extended conversation with her was on stage. And as she started answering some of the questions, I realized, whoa! I mean, she she when she gave her bio and she talked about you know basically doing SEO since 1995, like that. SEO didn't really exist in 1995, so she's really talking about like looking at weblog files and server files and all this other kind of stuff. And you realize like she has a really great idea about the specifics whenever you ask a question, and that's hard to find in SEO. And so I think our audience tried to take advantage of the best they could. But the the truth is is, and I said this in my you know kind of follow up to all the attendees, which was, man, you know, looking back. Uh, number one, I want to get her back at some point. But then number two, like, oh, man, I wish I could have got her more involved. Like, I wish I could have had her on the end of the day panel. I wish I could have, you know, given her her own session, have her answer more audience questions. And I think the audience wanted that, too. I think she would have had a line around the block for uh, questions if uh, we would have opened it up. So I think so, too. Um, now that it's over, do you and you've, you did a presentation as well. Do you have any ideas for what your future presentation will be at the next Pubtelligence? So um, I would say that probably the one, some of the other ones that we'll do this year, I will probably adapt the one that I gave this time um, uh, a little bit more because I think it does a good job of taking trends and then also bringing that down to specifically like what's maybe something you could do about this. And I think that that's something that finds that balance. So there's what we continually get from attendees uh, on the survey whenever we uh, get it back is basically you have two groups of people. The people that want to hear all about the trends, like what's coming next, how are things trending, and you know, like they want to come up with their own ideas and, and look ahead. And then you have the publishers that are basically like, I don't care about the trends. Like I'm focused on what do I do next? Like I want, I want an exact, should I be pulling keywords down. What tool should I use? How should I look at those? Like they want specifics. And so I think being able to find that balance between the two is important for us. So you can give some context as to like what it is we're trying to do. But at the same time, um, I do think uh, publishers want ideas. And I think we are in a space where there's lots and lots of opinions and it's hard to get objective data on what exactly you should do. And so uh, we have that, and we should you know, work hard to bring publishers that. Yeah, so that's what you guys have um, to look forward to if you plan to attend a future Pubtelligence event. 
Um, the next thing we have on deck today is actually a blog post that you helped write. Um, and it was about the Google Core um, update that just happened. So Google confirmed a new core search algorithm update on March 12th. Um, can you kind of go over um, your findings? Yeah, so uh, we, we did a study of thousands of publishers um, to, to see how it was impacting them early on in the process. Um, which we, it's funny, I was in the air whenever I found out about the core update. I was like, of course, I'm on my way to Google right now, you know, uh, what perfect timing. And so I knew immediately uh, once Google confirmed that there was an update that it would be something that we, we would talk about and probably hear about for a while. And so when we got back, I had one of our engineers basically get into the data and uh, try to look at, for the most part, uh, as clean of a data set as we could get. So we, we pulled down a couple thousand publishers worth of data, all different shapes and sizes. Um, we looked at, and then we eliminated the ones that had a lot of variance, um, uh, seasonality, and kind of like um, basically just outliers. So. If somebody was, you know, if somebody sees a lot of, you know, week over week, you know, volatility in their traffic or a lot of seasonality, we tried to eliminate them. So we tried to look at publishers that usually week over week were pretty consistent. And so uh, we pulled down, we eliminated all the ones that were volatile, and we looked at basically the same days of the week before the, the update, and then we looked at uh, all the days that we could afterwards. And what we found was about 54% of digital publishers uh, seem to be getting uh, more organic traffic after the update. Uh, and then on the you know, opposite side of that, there's 46% of publishers that weren't. I would say about 30 to 40% of those in like total uh, are kind of in this middle ground where it's, there's, there wasn't a big shift one way or the other. If we isolate that 54% of publishers that did see improvements, we saw a pretty good uplift on average, about 19, 19. yeah, about 19%, nearly 20%. Um, so that sh goes to show you there were some publishers that definitely won big in there, and then you know because you consider there's you know a decent amount of them that probably didn't see much. Um, and then on the on the opposite side, you know the 46% that did lose traffic, only about. It was only about nine percent decrease in organic traffic on average. So, even though it's not a mass majority of publishers that improved, um, they improved by a pretty large degree. And even though it's a pretty big minority of publishers that that weren't benefited by it, that lost traffic, it wasn't by a, a large degree. So, yeah. um, I would say, like, if you were to look at it as a whole. Publishers have definitely fared worse in algorithm updates, and so this one, um, if you're a general or quote-unquote average publisher, it probably helped you. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully it didn't hurt you too bad. I liked how towards the end of the blog post you started getting into conspiracies about, oh, it's a reversal from last updates. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to address it because I've heard it a lot, and uh, I don't believe that it's true. Um, I don't think that's how things work. I think it, that's how people's minds work. But um, I wanted to address it because I wanted to kind of like highlight um, some of the things that are out there, mainly because I know that people that will read this, um, one of the things I think people look for a lot of times, especially people that are like plowing through the internet to find these things, want to figure out like, did the person that wrote this or is this 
source taking into account these other things that I've heard or read, right? And so when you start to bring all those things together, you can establish, listen, we are thinking, we are looking at these things and thinking about them. Um, you know, there was an August 18th update. Uh, Google did in 2018. Um, I do think that when Google talks about updating their core algorithm, they're, they're looking at a lot of different things and they're probably adjusting a lot of them uh, together. And so when you see those things, it is possible that you'll see um, sites that are affected by a lot of those factors together uh, impacted heavily. And I think that that's more coincidence that it is like Google like Trying you know, throttling somebody up and throttling them down, you know, so. Yeah. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about today was how Bloomberg uh, managed to increase their Instagram video views by 600%. So although they only have only 800,000 Instagram followers, um, it's actually fairly small compared to a lot of other competitors. The Economist has 3 million followers. Um, the Financial Time has 1.3 million followers, yet they've still um, consistently gotten more video views than um, The Economist and Financial Times. So in January 2019, Bloomberg got 2 million video views, while The Economist got 1.3 million views, and The Financial Times only got like 4,000 video views, which I thought was a little crazy, and yeah. so I went onto their account, and they actually didn't even post any videos in January or February, so I guess that's where that comes from, but... Um, Bloomberg stated that they're looking closely at their social data and started to analyze which um, topics that their audience liked and disliked, and that's what they used to come up with um, new topics. And they keep their content really simple and concise. So they use the videos to explain the stories behind the headlines. And unlike stories, of course, Instagram videos can be played up to one minute. Mm -hmm. um, so you get a little bit longer than you would a story. Um, but one of Bloomberg's social editors said that the videos has been an integral success to their uh, social growth. But also there was a big explosion when they just started to use more graphics in general. So I found that really interesting. Yeah, and I think part of it just comes from um, using the platforms as they're intended and, and, and understanding what you know people want. So like you're talking about Instagram, I mean, it is a visual platform, right? And so um, I think, I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast or my, you know, like I've, I've had a lot of conversations with publishers recently, but the, the, the idea is, you know, if you try to basically take, you know, think about the idea of an article online, right? So that's internet browsing in a browser, right? If you try to take that experience and bring that to a social platform like Instagram, which is meant to be a visual platform for images and video, right? It doesn't really translate. You're, you're not, you're, you're not hanging, like you're, you're like the uh, old guy at a kid's party, you know? That's the best way to describe it is like you stick out because you don't fit in. And um, that's, that's sort of how I think a lot of publishers approach all the social platforms. They kind of just treat them all the same. And uh, the secret to doing it right, I think, is finding a way to adapt um, your content uh, to those platforms. So in this case, it's, it's video. Um, th these platforms all really like video because it increases uh, TOP, time on platform. So um, yeah, I think, I think that that's the secret to it. Uh, I, I like that they also were looking at like what stuff was getting liked and, and that sort of thing. It's a really simple thing, 
but uh, it's really easy to miss as well. It's kind of, that's one of the benefits of if you're really large, having a team dedicated to it is they have the time to actually do these kind of little thing, dives into the data that maybe publishers overlook a lot of times. But I guess it comes back to my advice in general on all these things is if you're going to spend the time to do it, do it right. Like take the time to do a quality job because if not, you may just be wasting your time and then you're going to be one of those people saying, ah, Instagram's no good for us, you know? Yeah, our audience isn't there. We don't know how to use it. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about was um, there apparently has been a boost in time spent on mobile, which isn't all that surprising. So according to a new Nielsen audience report, time spent on mobile has increased 5% among um, people ages 18 through 34. So the growth comes at the expense of television, of course. Um, so overall viewing uh, media consumption has remained the same about 10 and a half hours per day, which seems high for me. I don't know. I wonder if they count just like, you know, scouring the internet. As it doesn't media. surprise me because uh, I remember they used to have stuff out there that it was like the average person watches. I can't remember what it is, but it was an obscene amount of television. And I, I remember thinking, like, there's no way. Because I thought about how much TV that I watch. But I, but I also think, like, when you start to think about it, like, in terms of, I don't know. I don't want to generalize too much. But I, it doesn't surprise me because people have their phones with them all the time. And you think about the amount of most people can't sit in front of a TV all the time. Yeah. So uh, I'm not surprised at all. I'm not surprised to hear it's growing. I don't think that that's going to change. Mm -hmm. um, I think... Honestly, more than anything else, uh, I think everybody is really struggling to adapt uh, in understanding that, basically, how much time people are spending on their phones. And I think, you know, we, we're just talking about video on Instagram. I think that the, the publishers and just media outlets in general that are learning how to um, adapt quickly are going to be in position to really capitalize. Yeah, what surprised me is that the article also said that YouTube is getting the largest portion of this traffic, so they're responsible for 37% of all mobile internet traffic. Um, and Facebook and Snapchat are both pretty much tied with um, both under 9% of traffic. Yeah, I don't think people really understand sometimes just how big YouTube is um, from the standpoint of the decisions that they make. So YouTube, you know, we think of the Google search algorithm, how important that is. YouTube search algorithm is just as important, and it's, it's just such a different thing. And it, I, I'm not sure that publishers always think through, think about that the same way. And um, I think Google has real problems with it as well. They, I think they really struggle to figure out, because YouTube is different than Google search, right? Because all the content lives on the platform. Google kind of triages you know, well, I mean, like I search something on Google and then they send me to uh, skateboard.com or whatever it is, right? Um, on YouTube, uh, if I search something about skateboards, I'm going to get a YouTube video of someone that's published a video to YouTube, right? So now Google is sort of responsible for that content served on their platform. They're not as responsible for giving me a search result to some someplace else, right? Right. Um, they're, they're kind of like this unbiased third party, so to speak, right? Um, so, yeah, YouTube is, uh, uh, I, I, I'm glad that I don't have to run YouTube. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone's lining up to give me the job, but I'm happy about it. Um, the last thing I have on deck was this article. It had 10 important media stats from February of 2019, so just last month. 
Um, I chose about five of them, which I thought were pretty interesting, and I figured we'd just go through the list mm-hmm. and end it on kind of a fun note. Um, so last month, Facebook turned 15 years old. 15 years old. In internet years, that's that's basically 40, right? That's crazy. So worldwide, Facebook has approximately 1.52 billion daily active users I just can't even fathom it being more than 10 years old for some reason. But I know there was that period of time initially where nobody knew about it. I remember getting a Facebook. Uh, I won't tell I won't go into like a story about it. But I remember my friend went to a university that had it and we and my university didn't have it yet. And I was like super jealous. And then, then we got it. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And so now I, everybody hates having one. Yeah. And I remember at the time, like I got it. After I got it, I was like, MySpace is way better than this. I used to host parties at my at, at my home and we would um, we would use MySpace to promote the parties. Oh. We thought it was the best thing ever. <laughs> Anyways, the um, Facebook, was, I think, is really interesting. I mean, they went down uh, a couple weeks ago. I mean, they, they and Instagram, uh, which is kind of funny, right? Uh, you know, they... Uh, there we think of these giant platforms as being almost like too big to too b- mess too, up too big too big to have problems like that and they 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 do just like everyone else but uh facebook uh you know zuckerberg released you know like basically like kind of his vision for the company moving forward and one of the things i thought was really interesting is they talked about how you know essentially they don't see facebook as the future of facebook like they understand that that platform is is declining in daily active users and that the users that are on there i mean i'm not sure they're going to share all the details but i would imagine they're quite a bit old like the demographic is growing older um instagram is probably okay for now but i mean honestly like that'll that'll have the same life cycle we're sort of seeing here with these social media platforms that it's changing like each generation kind of has a different behavior and they like something different um Will Facebook own the social platform of the future? Possibly, you know. But uh, I did think that that was interesting that they sort of embraced that. I do think that that's going to change a lot of um, behavior for both publishers, but more so advertisers. Think about how many uh, direct-to-consumer brands um, have basically made their entire business on Facebook or Instagram. When uh, do you, Have you ever watched the show Shark Tank? Yeah, I love Shark Tank. So, like, 90% of businesses go on Shark Tank. Like, when they ask them, like, what's your revenue model? It's basically like, we advertise on Facebook, right? So, it there's going to be a time wherever that's going to have to be something else. Yeah, right? when Facebook turns into MySpace and it's kind of in its grave. Speaking of MySpace, did you see that they accidentally deleted, like, 12 years worth of user data the other day? No. Unfortunate. I mean, if that you is, think, sounds pretty fortunate, though. I think all the information well, on yeah, MySpace you want to be deleted. Meanwhile, there's a lot of people that could run for political office that didn't think they could before. But um, beyond that, MySpace. I mean, it really hasn't been worth a lot of money for a long time. I mean, but if there was one thing that they had, it was this asset of all this user data that's growing in age, um, and it's gone. Somebody r- over like overrode it somehow they got fired <laughs> yeah i mean they, I, they they may have just killed the business so they might not have to be fired <laughs> it's, just, it's done everybody went home that day um so the next stat we have is whatsapp which is also owned by facebook is deleting two million accounts per month to stop the spread of fake news so 
Um, they have about 200 million users, and India is the biggest market that they have. Um, it's also the country where people have been killed due to false information being spread on the platform. So 2 million accounts per month sounds like quite a lot of accounts to be deleting, but I guess you got to do what you got to do. That is the thing about the internet being open and free and then also having like large platforms is that the scale of the global internet base means that there can be a lot of bad actors coming from all over. I mean, you know, I, I've seen it in multiple instances in my career wherever we've had the ability for people from all over the world to sign up for something and you see um, literally the good and the bad of the world coming in through those things. And so uh, it doesn't surprise me that they have to delete that many accounts. Um, there's all kinds of different triggers you can look at for people that are nefarious. A lot of that's automated material that comes through. Um, but in general, I think this is one of the reasons why everybody is starting to kind of shift their focus to all these major platforms, Facebook, Amazon, Google, um, and asking the question of who who's managing this and are we all good with the way that things are being managed? And I, I'd, I'm not a huge fan of government regulation. I'm not sure that's the way to go. But I also don't know that we're in position right now to where um, everything is... I just don't think we know what's going on, um, and that includes the platforms themselves. And I, so I, I think there's a lot of we're all figuring this out going on, and it's okay to admit that. Yeah. And the next stat we have is that UK children spend more than two hours per day online. So kids ages 5 through 15 now spend around 20 minutes more online per day than they do watching TV. And unsurprisingly, YouTube is the primary driver of that shift. Um, the last one we have is Apple News hits 85 million readers, and despite the large user base, Apple is still being met with a lot of resistance from publishers to form this new subscription service that they have planned. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we may have talked about this like a month or two ago. Uh, Apple News has never given publishers anything to be excited about or any reason um, to think that it's going to be any different, so... I would say avoid at all costs. <laughs> I mean, there's not there's not a publisher with a success story there. Um, it's not a model that works for publishers. Um, I think that's I think I think if there was something out there that looks like the Spotify for for subscription content, it is the Apple News. And I don't. I mean, if you look at what um, what Spotify did, I mean, Spotify, Pandora, all those Apple Music. Uh, what they did for the overall cost of music, uh, it drove it down, right? So, you know, I've talked about this before. CDs, albums, eight tracks, cassettes, whatever you want to call it, they used to have a certain value. Uh, songs used to have a certain value, and that value has decreased significantly by this idea that someone is going to aggregate them all and uh, make it available to everyone, and then, you know, all the publishers get paid. Um, the problem is, is it gets divided up incrementally so much that no one really gets paid. Right. So. And that's all I have today. Is there anything on your side that's new? Nothing new. Uh, we touched on uh, a lot of the stuff going on in the world of publishing. If you have an opportunity to write us a uh, iTunes review, the podcast continues to grow. And uh, it's because we have so many uh, of you that listen. I, I know I got to meet a lot of you at Pub Intelligence, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully, we'll, we'll grow this podcast large enough that we can do some independent maybe podcast meetups or something like that. 
uh, around the globe. So thanks, everyone. We'll catch you next time on The Publisher Lab.